fall and is uh, not in good shape. Turned 100 just a couple weeks ago. So I prayed for him, and so I told him I'd make that announcement. Next is Judy Corzina. Um, so why don't we keep the Saturday Sabbath? Uh, it's true, it is in the Ten Commandments, um, and uh, but we don't. That's what we're talking about tonight. Now, it's uh, still talking about biblical allegories. This one is a little more technical. I'll try not to bore you, but you guys have to concentrate on it. We do have uh, notes there with all the, the scripture verses. Um, and there's a long way to go, so let's dive right in. Keeping the Sabbath. Just to quickly recap, uh, we began looking at uh, allegories about sin and the solution, leprosy, blindness, and the land. Then we talked about a war between our corrupt old nature and our new spiritual nature as we aim to live victoriously for Christ. And that the battlefield is primarily in our minds, right here, uh, is where we fight the war every day against the God of this world and the influence of this world. The war rages against the desires of our flesh, the desires of our eyes, and uh, the King James calls it the pride of life. If you look at the actual meaning, it gives you a really good idea of what God is saying. The arrogance produced by the false security of our material possessions. There's an arrogance in it. And the arrogance comes when we draw comfort from our possessions and lean less on God. Because we don't really need Him that much if we've got a lot of material possessions. And all of us do. If you're an American, you've got a lot of material possessions to lean on. Um, God provides a complete suit of armor for us, uh, including the helmet of salvation. And uh, one of the tools we have to use to help us fight this war is the simple expediency of remembering. Remember who you are, where you came from, why you're here, and best of all, where you're headed. Moses exhorted the Israelites on their journey through the uh, wilderness to remember. But those old Israelites were disposed to forget. Fancy that. They just forgot all the wonderful things God had done for them. And every time they hit a hard patch in the road, they just complained and moaned. And it's easy to look down your nose at them until you realize God's talking about us. So is he there to tell us not to be complainers, but to remember who we are, where we came from. Um, remember the day of our salvation when we turned our back on the world, which is typified by our crossing of the Red Sea. And then the day when we turned our back on our old self, typified by the crossing of the Jordan River. In this lesson, we're going to discover an even more powerful weapon. And that is the Sabbath rest. Shabbat is the Hebrew word for rest and hence the word Sabbath. So we'll start by looking at the controversy and uh, let's begin by praying. Father, thank you so much uh, for our time here together this evening. Thank you for the wonder of your word, Lord. It's so rich, it's so deep. There's so much in it that uh, it's just amazing when you begin to peel back the layers and see the depth of it all. I pray that you bless us as we listen, bless me as I try and share this truth uh, and in everything we say and do, may Jesus be glorified, for it's in his name we ask it. Amen. The Sabbath controversy. Um, to understand the meaning 
and implications of the Sabbath rest, it's necessary to go back to the Old Testament where it starts to record. We see that the Sabbath was one of the Ten Commandments, keeping the Sabbath, Exodus chapter 20. Now, we as Christians aren't subject to the law, uh, but uh, we do keep the law because they are universal moral standards. Not murdering somebody is a universal moral standard. Uh, honoring your father and mother is a universal moral standard. Not stealing is a universal moral standard. We keep those laws naturally as a decent law-abiding people, and of course, especially if we're Christians. But the one we don't keep is the commandment to keep the Sabbath. Uh, most of us don't observe the Saturday Sabbath. The Seventh-day Adventists do. They believe that if you don't keep the Saturday Sabbath, you can't be saved. And here's the scary part. They are half right and half wrong. They are wrong in the sense that if you don't keep that day, you can't be saved. But they're also right. Hang on to that thought and we'll get back to it in due course. Um, Counter-arguments to the view of keeping the Saturday Sabbath include some very good, strong reasons and arguments. As those who are alive from the dead, Romans 6.13, whose lives are not our own, we are to worship God every day, not just on Saturday or Sunday, but we do need to set the day aside when we gather to fellowship and worship. Interestingly enough, whenever Christ appears in his resurrection body in the New Testament, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you've got all the scriptures in your, in your notes there, it's always on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. The last day of the week is Saturday. The day of new beginnings is Sunday. That's the day he rose. No uh, coincidence that he rose on a Sunday because he epitomizes new beginnings. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you begin all over again. It's a whole new life in him. Um, then the New Testament never mentions any Saturday gathering for believers. There are two mentions in scriptures, uh, and they both mention the first day of the week, Sunday. Acts chapter 20 and 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It seems that Sunday, not Saturday, was the normal meeting day for the early church. Uh, Sunday, the first day of the week, as I've already said, celebrates the new creation with Christ as our resurrected Lord. But one practical reason why Christians back in the Old Testament, sorry, in the early church times, the beginning of the New Testament, a practical reason why they got together on a Sunday was, you'll recall, they were all Jews. The first church was in Jerusalem, and guess what they did on Saturday? They all went to the synagogue or the temple. They maintained their old religion while trying to figure out their new faith. And so uh, a lot of them wouldn't have been there to go to church on a Saturday. They went to church on a Sunday. So the first few years after the church began is a transition period for these people who saw themselves. They really struggled with that. They saw themselves first as Jews and then as Christians. Um, and it was a problem for some of them. Uh, we had a wonderful Bible study Sunday night about uh, the problem with the Judaizers and the problem between Peter and Paul over that fact. So I'm not going to dwell on that. But I do want to take a bit of time to look at the greatest commandment, arguably, is the Saturday Sabbath. 
indicating that Christians are not obliged to keep the Saturday Sabbath, we can't overlook the fact that God draws attention to resting on the seventh day of creation. I mean, right from the beginning of your Bible, the Saturday Sabbath, long before the law, is highlighted by God. Uh, now, the all-powerful God could have created the world in seven seconds, seven nanoseconds, one nanosecond. But he chose to do it in seven days for a reason. And one of those primary reasons is he could then stress, draw attention to the Saturday Sabbath, the day of rest when he had finished his creation. Scripture tells us that God not only stopped working on the seventh day, but that he blessed it and set it apart. Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. As a day of rest from ordinary labor, a day for spiritual service, a day that belonged to him. And it's also significant that that first rest day happened to be the first day of life for Adam and Eve after their creation on the sixth day. So their first full day of life was a day of rest. Um, also significant. Now, let me stress again, God didn't need the rest. He didn't uh, establish that day because he was worn out from creation. It was for those who serve him. And the requirement was so important that it was the first commandment to be observed by his people long before the law was given. In the Exodus account, the Israelites gathered manna sent from heaven as daily bread to feed them. They were not to try to store it, but to eat it all each day. Uh, if they tried to live on today's bread tomorrow, it turned rotten and stank. The picture couldn't be clearer. What that is trying to tell us is don't try and live on yesterday's blessings today. You need to go each day to God in prayer and Bible reading and meditation and walking with him. It's a daily thing. You don't get to coast tomorrow because today was a fantastic day with the Lord. We often make that mistake. Uh, the Israelites learned the hard way. God said, you've got six days. I'm going to send you manna. You don't have time to read the passage in Exodus 16. Uh, it's an interesting passage. There are all sorts of uh, interesting little tidbits there. One of them is uh, God says to them, I'm going to send you the manna. And you are to collect it each day. And if somebody collected a lot, they had just enough. And if they collected a little, they had just enough. But because they were a bunch of rebels, and I'm looking at a bunch of them here, uh, they, although he told them, just take enough, they uh, were lazy. And so they tried to take more than they needed so that, hey, tomorrow we can take our own rest day. And sure enough, the extra, when they woke up the next day, was rotten. Except, on the sixth day, they were to take a double portion. And when they kept that double portion through to the seventh day, so that they didn't have to work on the seventh day to go and collect the manna, it didn't turn rotten. What a mighty God we serve. He just had the whole thing worked out and tried to drive this lesson home to them. Uh, yeah, they were, they were not very good students. Uh, the Saturday Sabbath is mentioned 30 times. 
in the Old Testament, such as time, is formally uh, included in the list of Ten Commandments, and it seems that God wants to draw attention to that. But why? If we're Christians and we don't keep it, what's the point? And by the way, the penalty for breaking it is severe. If you, in the Old Testament, there's a story about some guys who went out on the Saturday Sabbath to get a few sticks, gather a few sticks for a fire that they were going to make, and they were struck dead. The penalty for breaking the Sabbath was death. So, let's look at the New Testament emphasis. What does this, this mean for us? Our relationship with God as New Testament Christians places an entirely new emphasis on the idea of a day of rest. And it's so wonderful, it would have been absolutely inconceivable to Old Testament Israelites. In the New Testament context of salvation, we are spiritually dead until we keep the Sabbath by resting in Jesus. Now that's a thought. You are spiritually dead until you keep the eternal Sabbath by resting in Jesus. And how do you do that? You get saved. The letters to the Hebrews clearly outlines this principle. We're going to read a wonderful passage in Hebrews together. Uh, and the passage we're going to read is based in large part on Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11. And as I was reading it again today, it struck me how amazing it is that God places, if you read Psalm 95, the first half has nothing to do with the second half, apparently. But there the words are placed there so that God could refer back to it from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament to stress the point he's going to make to us. And just um, as we begin to read it, I need to draw your attention to the fact we'll see in verse 8 of um, chapter 4, it refers to Jesus. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? That might confuse you. The Jesus there is not Jesus Christ, it's Joshua. Joshua was the Hebrew name. Jesus was the Greek equivalent of that Hebrew name. So when it speaks of Jesus there, it actually reads Joshua. Have I got you confused? Okay, uh, let's press on. So we're going to read Hebrews chapter 3, and it's an, an amazing passage. In this, uh, these few verses, we read uh, uh, constant references to resting and to today. And I'm going to emphasize them as we get to them. It begins uh, in verse 7. I think you've got the scriptures up there somewhere. No? Okay. Um, if you've got your Bibles, this is a test. Did you bring your Bible to church tonight? If not, you're going to have to believe that. I'm sitting in the seat as I read this. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, this is chapter 3, verse 7, today, if you will hear his voice. The emphasis on today is that everything about your relationship with Christ, with God through Christ, is immediate. It's always today when you're a Christian. Your past is under the blood. Your future is determined. God is very interested with what are you doing with Him and the life He's given you today. So today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation or the rebellion, that's a commercial.
brother says to me, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me or tested me, and saw my works 40 years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation. Now, uh, let me just point out, uh, this book, I think Paul was the author, but whoever the author was, was addressing it to Hebrews. So the argument here, uh, we have two thoughts running on parallel tracks. Resting in Christ for salvation uh, was the message to the Jews. Your rest will be found in Christ. Your Sabbath is to get saved not by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And the second track is resting in Christ for sanctification, which is a message to us Christians. Uh, and so those two interlock, overlap in this passage. So back to verse 10, Wherefore I was grieved with that generation said, and said, They do always err in their hearts. They have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily, while it is called today, tomorrow is too late, yesterday is past, act today in your relationship with God. Today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end, while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, as in the rebellion. Let's go down to um, verse 18. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now, part of this is referring to the entry into the promised land which was an allegorical picture of resting in Christ. It's also an allegorical picture of the victorious Christian life. And for the Israelites, it was uh, a picture of them entering into God's promised land where they could rest in his provision and his protection if they continued to serve him. So, uh, where did we get to? Verse, uh, exhort one another, baby, yes. Verse 18, to whom swear ye that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not. So we see that they could not enter in the promised land because of unbelief. Chapter 4, let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you would seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, very important statement. We which have believed do enter into rest. As it says, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. What he's saying is uh, stop working, start resting. For he's taken a certain faith, verse 4, of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works, and in this place again, if they shall enter my, into my rest, what he's saying is if God rested, you better rest. It was good enough for him, it should be good enough for you. <laughs> Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief, again he limiteth a certain day, saying, David, today, after so long a time, and he's quoting here from Psalm 95, 
And as he said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. For if Jesus or Joshua, Old Testament Joshua, had given them rest, then he would not ask, he would have spoken of another day. So your entering into promised land, your ancestors, did not qualify them for salvation in Jesus Christ. Um, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, and here is where it makes the transition into speaking to New Testament Christians, he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. And in verse 12 is that wonderful word, word, uh, verse about the word of God being living and powerful, quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. So rest is mentioned ten times. It's a reference to salvation by faith and not works. So let's try and sum this up. We see God resting after his labors in creation as an example to the Israelites to rest from their labors on the seventh day Sabbath. But it is also a message to all seekers after God to rest permanently from their dead works by placing their faith in Christ. We see then that the Old Testament Sabbath was not an end, but pointed forward to our time, uh, a vital principle to be revealed in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When Jesus cried on the cross, it is finished. He meant he fulfilled the Old Testament law. He fulfilled the requirement to work for salvation. That was done with. There is now a new dispensation. Um, his work of salvation was complete in his death and resurrection. And so there's nothing left for you and I to do. Not one little thing. Not one little stick you have to pick up to save ourselves. God requires that we rest in what he has done. When we come empty-handed to God and by faith, not our works, receive salvation in Jesus Christ, we enter an eternal Sabbath rest. You and I keep the Sabbath every single day, every second of our lives because we need Jesus Christ. If you are saved, you're a Sabbath keeper. If you're not, it doesn't matter what else you are, you are doomed. It's simple as that. So, with that exhortation in mind, keep resting. Stay where you are in Christ. This principle of resting from our labors of self-justification and self-promotion and self-protection is likewise vital for our salvation if we are to live a victorious and spiritually fulfilling life a spiritually productive life in Christ. The principle is illustrated again and again throughout Scripture. God doesn't require us to sweat for Him. He requires us to submit to Him. There's a big difference. We're so tempted to try and bribe God with our performance because I messed up last week, so if I double tithe this Sunday, maybe He'll overlook that little mistake of mine. That's not the way Christians are supposed to live. There was an occasion in Israel's history when they were leaving the promised land on their way to Egypt, but on their way out of Egypt, their head 
Egypt on their way to the promised land. And ahead was the impenetrable barrier of the Red Sea. Behind them was the approaching Egyptian army. And the people cried out in terror. And then Moses spoke. Moses, who had learned something about resting in God and trusting in God during his miserable 40 years as a desert shepherd. Uh, he learned patience. He learned to trust God. And this is what he said to them. These were, this was his command to the Israelites. Standing there, there's a sea, there's the army. Which way do you run, left or right? And Moses commands to them, stand still. Fear you not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Exodus 14, verse 13. The people stopped running. They trusted God. And they couldn't imagine what he would do next. But instead of looking at the threat behind them, they looked up. This is what we should do. And then the sea parted. A great deliverance took place. Stand still. Christians, stand still in your salvation. Stand still in your position of Christ. Don't run around like a chicken with his head chopped off, as my friend here discovered his last Wednesday yesterday. Um, I can't imagine what that was like, but <laughs> don't run around trying to solve your problems. Stand in God. Stand in your position in Christ. Stand still. Wait. The, the command hasn't changed in 4,000 years. Stand still. Look up. God is in control. Scripture declares, and it doesn't matter what, and a lot of trials confront us. Uh, bad things happen to Christians just like they happen to other people. We don't get an exemption. What we do have is a way out of our trials with a smile on our face and joy in our hearts because we rest in God. Christians who learn to walk with God don't fall apart under trials, they grow stronger. And that's God's purpose. Don't ever forget that. Wait. God is in control. Listen to this fantastic verse from Isaiah 28, verse 16. Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. What a tremendous statement. If you believe, you're not going to be in a hurry. You're not going to panic. You're not going to rush around. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? No. You won't make haste. Just stand still. Wait for God to act. Not making haste means not acting independent of God, not doing what you think is best. That is the way of sweat and stress and anxiety and uncertainty. The results are always sooner or later disastrous. Typically what Christians do, and I'm a Christian so I do it too, uh, we have a problem, we see the problem, and we figure, okay, if I do this, or that, or that, you know, I'm going to, okay, I think I got it, I got this thing solved, and then we say, Lord, please bless this, uh, I need your help here, or we don't even pray then, we first try our plan, and it ends in disaster, and then we cry out to God, Lord, help, help, I'm in trouble, and, you know, sometimes I can almost hear God saying to us, Dummy, why didn't you call me before you started to figure it out? I could have helped you then. Instead of waiting until you made this problem worse and then ask for my help. He that believeth shall not make haste. The identical thought carries through to the New Testament where Paul 
tragic exhibition of spiritual warfare in Ephesians warns us that in our battle against the rulers of the darkness of this world, we are to make use of the whole armor of God, that we may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, stand. Stand, therefore, Ephesians 6, 13 and 14. Stand. Stand still. Wait. God's got your back. God's got a plan. God's in charge. Just trust Him. When you learn to stand, it brings rest. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28, He says, He takes my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Note that the first rest, verse 28, is a gift. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. Uh, but entering into the second rest takes work. When our burden of sin is lifted and we experience the rest of salvation, Jesus immediately offers us the burden of service, a yoke, through which we learn to find rest. Now, class, here's the test for you. How is it possible to rest while working? God has the answer. The answer is that it goes to the very heart of the Christian experience. Misunderstanding this point dooms many Christians to lives that are a burden to themselves and unsatisfactory to God because our idea of working and His idea of working are two totally different things. Work to us denotes labor and the expectation of some reward for our efforts and then the anticipated payoff doesn't come, we get mad at God. We grow impatient. We're dissatisfied. This isn't the work that Jesus speaks of. His work is spiritual. The service he has in view is service to him and with him, not for him. Oh, I'm glad it's up there on the board. Underline it. You can't up there, but write it down. <laughs> Remind yourself of that. The work he has in view is not for him or to him but with him yoke up with him and life goes a whole lot easier and that is the true sabbath rest right there but we're so entrenched in our idea of work and so confident of our natural ability that it's just difficult to appreciate what jesus is calling us to do yet we must see it if we are to grow spiritually if we are ever to liberate ourselves from the tyranny of cluttered schedules and crushing workloads and the impatience and disappointment that is fueled by unmet deadlines and unfulfilled expectations. According to Matthew, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, finding rest in the midst of busyness simply requires us to follow our Savior's invitation to yoke up with him. Uh, to help you appreciate this, just imagine that you're a beast of burden. Perhaps a donkey can fit in. Picture for us. A little donkey, and you've got a huge load that you've got to carry. Uh, it's crushing you. I mean, you just can't handle it. And then the great and infinitely powerful God comes alongside you and gently says, take my yoke. 
making a safer medicine piece for the government to use. Let that thought sink in. And then consider that it's no burden to carry God's presence. It's no burden to get up an hour early and go and sit somewhere quiet and think about him. Uh, read a verse of scripture and just meditate on it. Or just thank him for all the incredible blessings he showers on us every single day of our lives. And he demands that when we do that, we approach him with empty hands. An empty agenda, an empty do list, and a blank personal performance checklist. Oh, we're so good at those checklists. Well, I'm going to have a good time with the Lord today because yesterday I crushed it. I helped a little old lady across the street. I went and got an extra check at the church. I uh, read my Bible, another 10 chapters. And I know God's going to bless me today. You approach God on that basis and the skies are as bright. And then, of course, you start getting upset at God. Don't you appreciate what I'm doing, God? I mean, look at the life I'm living for you. I'm such a good guy or gal. Why aren't you blessing me? And his answer to us, if you pay attention, is because you're not coming to me the way I want you to come. I want you to come empty-handed. I don't care about your performance. I care about your attitude, your love for me. Oh, and then we get to that wonderful, my favorite passage in Ezekiel, which I often quote. Ezekiel 44, 13 and 16, verse 18. They shall come near to me to minister to me. They shall stand before me to offer unto me the fat and the blood, saith the Lord God. They shall enter into my sanctuary. They shall come near to my table to minister to me. And they shall keep my charge. They shall not gird themselves with anything that causes sweat. When you come into God's presence, he doesn't want to smell the sweat of your labor. He just wants you to come as you are, empty-handed, and love him, so that he can love you back. The most telling, uh, the great uh, missionary to China, uh, well, actually, before I get there, how much time? Ooh, we're definitely going over five minutes. I'm almost done. Luke 10, 38 to 42. You won't read it, but I'll tell you the story. It's the story of Mary and Martha. Jesus goes to their house. Martha invites him in, and she gets into the kitchen, and she starts cooking up a storm because Jesus is there, the one she loves, the one she, she worships, and she wants to do something special for him, and she starts making the best dinner you've ever seen. And her sister Mary is in the sitting room, sitting at Jesus' feet, just staring at him waiting on every word. And finally, Martha goes to and says to Jesus, tell Mary to come and help me. Don't you know that I'm here working really hard to make this delicious meal for you and that lazy sister of mine is doing nothing but sit there. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're distracted by too much work. Mary has chosen the better part and shall not be taken from her. Remember Mary and Martha. The great missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, aptly summarized the idea of resting on God in one little verse. 
of those who were ready. And it says it all. Bear not a single care thyself. One is too much for thee. The work is mine, and mine alone. Thy work to do less than this. The most killing outward characteristics of a Christian, every Christian, is enjoy and keep all this. Before you become aware of the beliefs of others, you should notice their joy and peace flowing from reconciliation both with God and with themselves and the circumstances of their lives. Someone has said that God's will is exactly what you would choose if you had all the facts. After salvation, resting in God is believing that you abide in the one who does have all the facts and trusting him to work circumstances according to his perfect will, regardless of what temporal events or your physical senses tell you. This is the way of peace. It's a sure antidote, antidote to impatience or fear. Just rest in him. Keep the Sabbath. Amen. Father, bless us. May this truth abide in our hearts. May we become deeper and better worshippers of thee as we speak from our lips and rest in thy name.